This is Anchor Points with Robert Quintana. God wants us to be happy. Every week, helping you discover the answers to some of life's biggest questions. There is a purpose for our lives. And applying them to help you grow closer in your walk with God. Messages straight from the pulpit of Frederick Seventh-day Adventist Church of Frederick, Maryland. What's going to drive you to your knees? Is it going to be fear or is it going to be love? Feel free to discover more like this at AriseForGod.com. A few years ago, an angry man rushed through the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam until he reached Rembrandt's famous painting, Night Watch. He proceeded to take out a knife and slashed it repeatedly before he could be stopped. A short time later, a distraught, hostile man slipped into St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome with a hammer and began to smash Michelangelo's beautiful sculpture, the Pieta. Two cherished works of art, severely damaged. But what did they do with those artifacts? Throw them out and forget about them? Well, they found top experts who worked with the utmost care and precision and made every effort to restore the treasures. You see, what's taking place here is that Jesus is sharing not only the redemption process, but the restoration process of the human race. That's Robert Quintana, who explains that you may feel damaged and worthless, but when you allow God to restore you back to the way he intended, you'll experience something remarkable. It's something the early believers experienced for themselves, being born of the Spirit. Pastor Quintana shares exactly what that means as he shares the third and last part in this series, Be Born Again. So I'd like for you to turn to John chapter 3. I'm reading from the New King James Version today. Remember that Jesus is having an amazing conversation, a powerful dialogue with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a religious leader. And it says here in verse 5 that Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what it means to be born again. Part one of this series, we looked at kind of the the big picture, what it means to be born again. And basically it means a surrendering. You are surrendering your life to Christ. You're surrendering your life to God. You're acknowledging him as creator, as Lord, as savior, as friend. You're giving your life over to him. But he goes on to kind of explain this a little bit by suggesting, by saying that there are are two parts to this surrendering. There are two phases to this surrendering process. One is a baptism of water, and two, a baptism of the Spirit. In part two, we looked at what it means to surrender through baptism by water. And if you remember, we talked about how John the Baptist came baptizing And his invitation to the people was to repent. Repent of your sins, be baptized for the remission of your sins. And so we talked about how that first phase of surrendering is one where you acknowledge the divinity of Christ and you're saying, God, I thank you, I praise you 
for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for my sins. And that when you surrender through the watery grave, you are surrendering your life to him in a way that says, I surrender my life, I accept you, I accept your purpose for my life, I am repenting from my wicked ways, I am turning away from my current life, and I am going to now attend to the ways that you have intended for me, and in that we experience a remission of sin, a justification of one's life. In other words, our sins are now no longer held against us. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid for those sins on the cross. But did you notice that he said, and a baptism of the Spirit? That's what we're going to look at here today. What does it mean to be baptized by the Spirit? A few years ago, Heather and I had gone to an antique shop near Boonesboro. And uh, as we were walking through, we saw this, this little table, kind of an end table. And we both thought, man, that is beautiful. I mean, it, it was kind of a distressed wood. We both just kind of fell in love with it until I saw the price tag. And you know how antique furniture can be expensive. I said, babe, we can't afford that. And even if we could, I just don't know that I can come around to spending that much money on an antique, um, antique furniture, an end table. So I, I said to her, I said, I, I tell you what, you know that end table that we have at home? Why don't I try to do the same thing to that end table as what we're seeing here? She said, you think you can do that? Of course I can. No problem. Let's give it a try. And so we got home. I got online. I looked up, you know, distressed wood. And as we're searching, I come across crackling. Do you guys know what this is when, when you have crackled paint? And I, oh, man, that's beautiful. So I showed a picture of that. She, that's what I want. Forget the distressed wood. Let's do crackle paint. I was like, no problem. So I read up the step one, step two, how to do it. Great. I head down to um, one of the home improvement stores. I get the materials that I need. There's this crackle finish paint, and you have the underneath coat and then the, the top coat. You know, get some sandpaper. You know, so a few dollars later, I'm thinking, we're going to show this antique store. So the first Sunday that I had available, I laid out my paint, I laid out the sandpaper, and I got to work. And so I'm sanding this end table, sand it down really nicely. I get the bottom coat, which is what's going to come through the crackling, and I paint that really nice, let that dry, let that sit. And then I go and I get the, the clear coat crackle that you put on top to, to make the, the actual paint, you know, crackle. And so I put that on and everything's going just fine, but it doesn't seem to be adhering to the end table. So I keep on putting more of this stuff on, right? And so I'm, you know, man, it's not sticking to it. It's, it's not covering it completely. So I'm, now I'm like gobbing it out of this, you know, this quarter gallon and I'm just like, you know, really putting it on. And uh, I, I missed a step. I didn't realize I had to let that dry before I put the next coat of paint on. And so I went ahead and cracked open the next can of paint and started putting it on there. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this doesn't look right. 
it's not crackling the way it's supposed to. And it started to kind of clump up and all this goop just started to come down the side of the table. And I'm thinking to myself, this does not look right. Folks, let me just say that I am ecstatic at the idea, at the thought that God is better at restoring people than I am at restoring furniture. You see, what's taking place here in John chapter 3 is that Jesus is sharing with Nicodemus the, not only the redemption process, but the restoration process of the human race. You need to understand that centuries leading up to this conversation, the idea, the thought, the, the theology, the doctrine, whatever you want to call it, had crept into the church that in order for one to be saved, all you needed to do was keep all of the laws. And as long as you kept all of the laws, you would secure your place in eternity. As long as you kept all of the laws, you would be saved. And they were so intent in keeping the laws that they would add laws upon laws upon laws in order not to break the law. They wanted to keep the law. But you know how humans are. You know we're pretty clever, right? If there's a way around something, we can figure it out. If there is a way to justify what we're doing, we can probably figure that out. And that's why they kept on adding laws upon laws upon laws so that we couldn't find our way around the law, right? So you would keep the law. And someone would say, well, no, you're breaking the law. Well, no, technically I'm keeping the law. So they would say, well, no, 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 that, that can't be. So they would add another law so that you wouldn't be breaking the law. And this is part of what Jesus struggled with in trying to communicate with the people. He said, look, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I'm telling you that if you think murder in your heart, if you think hatred towards your brother, you've already committed murder. And so you see, these folks were trying to keep the law to the T, and they thought that as long as they did that, they would be saved. And here comes Jesus, and now in this chapter 3 of John, he is explaining to Nicodemus the redeeming and restoration process that they had put together the plan of salvation that God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit had put together. And so he says, you must be baptized of water and the Spirit. And he goes on to explain what this redemption and what this restoration process looks like. We'll pick up the story in verse 16, a passage that we all know very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Here Jesus is outlining for Nicodemus the plan of salvation that was laid out before the foundation of the world. You know, the Old Testament talks about this. 
the scriptures say that the scriptures will make you wise unto salvation. Well, you know, when that was written, the only scriptures available was the Old Testament. So the Old Testament can make us wise unto salvation. And when you look at the Old Testament, what you see is a God who loves his people and trying to get them to understand the plan of salvation. But they had completely missed the boat. And having missed the boat, they were now focusing on the law alone. And they thought that as long as I keep the law, I'm saved. Jesus is saying, sorry, that's not the way it works. All of you have sinned and someone needs to pay for the penalty of that sin. And that is where now Jesus, the blameless, perfect lamb of God, hangs on a cross to pay for your sins. And this is what he's trying to get Nicodemus to understand. And he says to him, you must be born of water, which we talked about last time. You must surrender. You must say, you know what? I repent of my wicked ways. I'm turning aside from the road that I'm on. And now, God, I give my life to you. And John the Baptist says that in that process, you will experience a remission of sins. Your sins are are justified. Your sins are not held against you. But Jesus talks about another baptism, doesn't he? He talks about the baptism of the Spirit. So what does that mean? What does that look like? I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to read a wonderful little story here. Acts chapter 19, starting with verse 1. And it says, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having received through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. Now, that's an interesting text to me. Apparently, the gospel had gotten out already. And here he has come to Ephesus and he finds some disciples there in Ephesus It says here in verse two, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Huh? What a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's a question I asked of myself, man, did I receive the Holy Spirit? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Like, we have no idea what you're talking about here, Paul. What what do you mean, Holy Spirit? Now, listen to the question that Paul says to them here in verse 3. Then he said to them, into what then were you baptized? What were you baptized in? Like, he's trying to figure this out. So check this out. I don't know how this happened because the Bible doesn't tell us, but these disciples somehow, some way, must have heard the message of John the Baptist. But it says here in verse three, and he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized you with a baptism of repentance, there it is, saying to the people 
that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And I think when we take into consideration part two's definition of baptism or surrendering, and when we read this definition of baptism, of surrendering, we can probably all say, you know what? Most of us here today have already experienced that baptism. We've experienced that surrendering. Maybe not through water, but as we mentioned last week, that baptism doesn't necessarily have to happen with water. Look at the thief on the cross. He accepted Jesus Christ into his life. He had not been baptized yet, but yet he took that surrendering. What that baptism of water represents, the thief on the cross experienced. But listen to what Paul goes on to say. John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now listen to verse 6. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Wow. They have just now experienced a second baptism, a baptism of the Spirit. Now, it's very important for me to clear up some stuff here that's a little confusing, okay? Because in the Greek, it is a little bit unclear which verse 5 belongs to. Let me explain. Does verse 5 belong to verse 4 or does verse 5 belong to verse 6? In other words, were these disciples baptized with John's baptism by water and then verse 5 baptized again with water and then verse 6 baptized by the laying on of hands by the Holy Spirit? Or does it mean that they were baptized by water by John and then baptized by the Holy Spirit and verse 6 only helps to describe what is taking place in verse 5? The theological community is divided on this. can go either way. But that's not the point. You see, because the point is, is that there are two baptisms taking place, isn't there? But I would say, you know, we've experienced, or most of us here have experienced the baptism of water. Have we experienced the second? Have we experienced the second baptism, the baptism of the Spirit? It's a question that we need to wrestle with. You know, we pray all the time, God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us. God, let your Holy Spirit live in me. Lord, give me a double portion of your Spirit. We pray these things all the time, right? Do we know what it means? Do we know what it would look like? I'd like for you to turn a few chapters back to Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 4. It says, and being assembled together with them, He, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So these disciples have already been baptized by water. Jesus is now saying to them, in a few days, you're going to be baptized by the Spirit. Let's read what happens a few days from then. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. Now, how many of you would just be there going, oh, wow, neat. Oh, this is cool. How many of you would be running out of, the, out of the room like, what's going on? How many of you would be prepared to receive whatever it is that God has in store for you? This baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's no easy thing to understand. And I think that sometimes we say, God, pour out your Holy Spirit, not really understanding what it is that we're asking for. Several years ago, instead of praying for God to pour out his spirit on me, I started to pray this prayer, which I think it's very appropriate and maybe a prayer that some of you might want to start praying. I started to pray, God, please prepare me to receive your spirit. Because I noticed I've been praying for the Holy Spirit for a long time, but something's not there. Something's not meshing. So Maybe it's because I'm not ready to receive the Spirit. So God, prepare me. Prepare me to receive your Spirit. Well, the disciples were prepared. It says that they were praying. They were of one accord. You know, when you read about what the attitude was with them and with one another, you realize, wow, compare the early church to Christendom looks like today, you think, whoa, right? Totally different. What goes on, they describe here how they went out. They were preaching to the multitudes. There were people there from from all different nationalities. And each one of them was able to hear them in their own language. And so the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is going out in a mighty way, in a powerful way. Peter then quotes the Old Testament and he says that this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. Verse 16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it came and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see dreams. The Spirit isn't a New Testament thing, as some people would like to say. The Spirit of God was present in the Old Testament. He's telling them about this plan of salvation that has been laid out for us to now understand more clearly. And as he's sharing with them this message, in verse 37, it says, 
now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What do we do? This is amazing. We need to do something. What do we do? Verse 38. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Does that sound familiar? And listen to what it says. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this verse I love, all right? Verse 39, for the promise of this redemption and restoration that is taking place, that promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That promise is for you and for me. As we leave here today, let us all have a spirit of surrender, a spirit that says, God, I want to experience your redemption. I want to experience your restoration. God, I surrender. You've been listening to Anchor Points with Robert Quintana and part three of Be Born Again. If you would like to hear or share this message and find others like it, you can subscribe to our podcast at ariseforgod.com or by searching Anchor Points on iTunes. You can also follow Anchor Points on Facebook. Next week, we honor moms, not because the calendar says we should, but because moms deserve our love and respect every day of the year. She was attentive to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's Robert Quintana, who will share a special message just in time for Mother's Day with part one of Long Upon the Land. We appreciate you listening. This program is produced by Word of Mouth Productions in cooperation with Frederick Seventh-day Adventist Church. And remember, God loves you and wants you to live out his purpose.